everyone. Welcome to Manufacturing Hub with me and a missing Vlad. Uh, we have a very special two-part episode I have mentioned um, already on Manufacturing Hub. We're talking about enterprise, modern enterprise architecture with Jeff Nemper and Graham Welton. Jeff, Graham, welcome to the show. Thank you guys for being here. Thank you, Dave. Thank you very much. Uh, absolutely. So, um, Jeff, can we start with you? Can you give us a little bit of a background of how you found yourself into manufacturing? I think everyone here has a slight non-traditional uh, background in manufacturing, but can you tell us how you've found yourself in, in manufacturing and maybe in this room? Yeah, well, I will go ahead and just spoiler alert. Graham does not have a non-traditional background. Uh, after he got after he got out of uh, after he got out of prison, I think uh, that little stint in prison, he took some classes. Um, I will share my uh, my very non-traditional background. So I was doing um, small business management and ran into the team at Canary. Uh, about first met them, I'd say almost a decade ago now. And uh, kept hearing about this incredible software that they had uh, and how it served industrial uh, automation and manufacturing. And over a dinner one night, uh, started to learn more and more about the technology, got really interested, uh, mainly on some of the business problems they were trying to solve. And started going in on my day off of work, um, hanging out with the folks at Canary, learning about their technology, and realized that some of my background in small business management um, be very useful for them as they were trying to communicate their product a little more clearly, look at some business processes that maybe the industry had, oh, I don't know, modeled that they were following that uh, was not uh, was not really right at the moment. Um, I could go on a little bit of a tangent, actually. So this is kind of a neat thing. I had gone through two different industries that had already gone through a digital transformation, the yeah. industry itself meaning the way business was conducted, the internet had disrupted. Um, mm -hmm. I originally was managing auto dealerships, did that for almost 13 years. And when I started that career, no one knew what the invoice of a vehicle was. No one knew what the buy now price would end up being. Uh, when I left that, everybody and their brother had five quotes of pricing they knew what invoice was they knew what their car was worth right all of they'd already been pre-qualified at an interest rate the whole industry had been digitally transformed same way with real estate 20 years ago you couldn't get any information about a home without a realtor and today we've questioned you know do i really need to pay a realtor six percent when i sell a home um i was shocked when i came to canary and realized that this entire industry in, in 2015 uh, was still was still operating like most other businesses 20 years ago. Um, and so that was a really just a, a huge opportunity that I saw. And uh, it's been seven years now. And I've uh, learned a lot about uh, data historians, uh, particularly time series databases, and how companies are trying to use them all around the world um, to solve their to solve their uh, data problems, essentially. No, uh, very interesting. I, I think that that is a very good setup on your side, Jeff. And so, so Graham, do you want to start as to what led you into prison or after you got out of prison? Uh, J Jeff kind of set you up very well on that. No, that was a proper setup. No, I, I have a pretty traditional background in our industry. I guess the only thing that's slightly odd is that I did mechanical engineering and not electrical or, or electromechanical. Um, 
So yeah, I I worked for a couple of system integrators soon after graduating. And then I was very fortunate I went into the brewing industry. And I learned a lot about drinking beer and tasting beer. And, and, and that was a huge education. That was completely different to university. Um, but but seriously, I, I got involved in control and automation. So a little bit different to, to what I studied, but uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. Started learning more and more about managing data, realized how much data gets created at the control and automation level, and ultimately how little that data actually gets used to add value. Um, so after about five years of working with the breweries, I decided to start up my own system integrator company uh, with two fantastic partners. We're still going today. Great, great system integrator company. And after working with a number of different customers for a couple of years, we, we started to realize this, this data management problem, data to information transformation problem, mm-hmm. is actually quite a generic problem across manufacturing, across mining. Uh, and we decided let's, let's build a tool that we could use as a system integrator to very quickly add value to those customers and, and help them leverage that data that they were typically storing in a historian and maybe a few databases, et cetera. Um, and, and basically that was the start of Flow Software. So in 2015, we split Flow Software off from the system integrator company, same partners and myself, um, mm-hmm. and we started operating. And that's, that's pretty much where I am today. I focus on Flow Software, that's my baby. Um, my partners focused on the system integrator company. And uh, yeah, that's where we are. Interesting. So, so Graham, you mentioned, and I guess for anyone who doesn't know you personally, you currently live in, in uh, South Africa, right? So you live in Johannesburg. And uh, so the, the question will be valuable to some extent for everyone. You said you kind of finished your mechanical engineering degree and then you went to work for a, a systems integrator. Is that a normal career path that, that you found yourself and, and many other uh, classmates and, and friends kind of going into? Is, is manufacturing and systems integration much more normal and prevalent of a career path over there? No, I don't think so. I think it was a little unusual. Um, when I finished my degree, I went into a traineeship and it was a mechanical traineeship and i found myself on a plant in the middle of nowhere not really enjoying maintenance engineering because that was kind of what mechanical engineers were meant to do and i had been i'd studied thermodynamics and fluid dynamics i had visions of going into aeronautical i had visions of going and working for a formula one team you know, that, that was the level of mechanical engineering that I thought I would end up in. And this traineeship was, to put it bluntly, a hell of a boring process. But it was valuable um, because I met the control and automation team, the instrumentation team, 
And I just, they opened a completely new world to me, which I hadn't even been exposed to at varsity. So thank goodness for that, because that set me up in my career. Um, I basically tagged along with a couple of instrument techs for a couple of months. I learned what a PLC was. I learned to program a PLC. And when I finished my traineeship, I didn't know much about maintenance engineering or mechanical engineering. And luckily I finished and I was able to then go and get a job at a system integrator. Um, yep. So that's kind of how it worked. And I, I honestly don't think it's a, it's a common path. Most system integrator employees um, and, and founders would have come from the electrical engineering side in South Africa. Definitely. Interesting. No, no. Th thank you for that perspective as, as if you guys and anyone that has watched, one of kind of the big questions is always, how do we get more people into the industry, right? Uh, we, we, all, we need more, I mean, we need more of basically everything in the industrial manufacturing uh, sectors. And so it's, it's always interesting to kind of discuss everyone's uh, unique career paths uh, on, on how they got in when they were relatively younger, as opposed to, to Jeff who just go, went to start hanging out with another company and uh, and and now now here he is, uh, which is unique in and of itself. And for everyone who has met Jeff in person, I'm confident absolutely no one is uh, is surprised that that is uh, that is how you've managed to uh, to come to Canary, Jeff. Um, so I I want to dig into and start digging into the, the modern enterprise architecture, and a lot of it came from a conversation that Jeff and I had either at the end of last year or the or the beginning of this year. Um, so he and I were, were catching up and we were talking about what we had been doing uh, since probably right before COVID. And, and Jeff, you told me a story of a company came to you and they're like, Jeff, I want to build all of this out on Historian. And at some point you looked at them and said, we could absolutely build all of this on Historian for you, but it's not the right path to go down. It's not the right tool to kind of build all of this. Can, can you go ahead and share that story, please? Yeah. Sure, absolutely, Dick. So um, we'll, we'll kind of go in reverse order. So we'll, uh, we'll start with the end already in mind. Um, if, we think about, if we think about your options from an enterprise, well, let's first just, let's define what is an enterprise architecture? Um, what, wait, if you're someone whose daily focus uh, of your job is to keep a line moving, you're, you're probably not thinking a lot about enterprise architectures, right? You're, you're probably thinking about the job that is at hand in front of you. And I think, and I think that is most of our, most of our audience, not just today, but in general, the people that we're talking to are, are involved with keeping the line running, keeping the raw material coming in and the widgets going out um, and doing that as safely and as efficiently as possible. Uh, in fact, if we, if we think about the history of industrial automation and manufacturing, we've been, we've been focused on the production of goods through the automation um, uh, process for the last 40 or 50 years, right? Um, and along that, along that journey, along that path, we started collecting data. And originally this was probably clipboards, <laughs> uh, walking around, uh, checking gauges, writing down uh, measurements, um, eventually we figured out a way to attach a pin 
to a uh, little arm that would move based on a sensor and a chart recorder, round chart recorders. Uh, but we were really kind of just going after that first level of analytics. It was that very first idea of, can you just tell me what happened? And, uh, Graham, you, you're an analytics pro, four levels, that level is what, descriptive? Am I yeah, on so, it? Yeah, that's so that could be defined in the analytics continuum as descriptive analytics, basically telling you what has happened. Yeah, right. And so, you know, is that enterprise? No, that is, that is local. That is a, that is a guy or a gal trolling a process that just needs some sort of history. And they're looking at literally one source for that one database, one, one or two pins, maybe one or two tabs. Um, but then all of a sudden we start realizing, okay, well, if we can hire, we can position some other folks in this, in this operation, um, process engineers. And they can help us keep the line running. They can help us troubleshoot. They can help us um, think about not just what happened, but uh, that second level, the diagnostic side of it. Why did this occur? And to do that, you need more than just one, one data source. So you're, you're looking maybe at historian, you're looking at your, at your history, but then all of a sudden you're pulling in a second data source. Um, it could be as simple as having a, another screen beside you and you're playing tennis, right? You're looking over on one side at the trend, you're looking at the other side to see what was happening during this period of history and you're correlating and you're doing that uh, internally. Or Graham, you've seen, I'm sure you've seen a few spreadsheets, yeah. right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, yeah, actually a good story there. When I worked for the breweries, um, I was the systems manager and kind of my internal customers would, would come to us with the what. They would tell us what has happened. They would show us they could see what, what had happened. They could see it on the trends. They could see it um, on their SCADA systems. But, of course, they wanted to know why. They wanted to know what they can do next time to make things run smoothly. And so... Um, myself and my team, we would often sit down and look at multiple sources of data. Obviously, the historian was, was a primary data source um, that, that gives us the what. But often, we would have to pull in information from other systems like a, an ERP system, a, a MES, or a LIM system, um, and start pulling additional information to help us correlate and synchronized by time to find out why these things were happening and to help them going forward to, to avoid doing the wrong thing going forward. Um, and it was very much a manual process, a, a, an excruciatingly manual process. You know, often, like you say, either men, multiple screens trying to pull stuff across or tabbing between screens or pulling information into spreadsheets and then trying to tie things up and, and, and match things up. So, yeah, a really difficult process, but that was what we had available to us. You know, that's what we were able to do, this diagnostic analytics to, to answer the why. Yeah. Yeah, Dave, um, you, you dropped, and what we were discussing as you dropped was just simply 
this concept of, you know, the descriptive was pretty easy. You just needed a data source. Um, diagnostics, Dave does not like it when we say the word diagnostic. Uh, <laughs> we won't say diagnostic anymore. Um, the, uh, the second level, and I'm going to try it just now and see if it works. Uh, diagnostics uh, analytics would require someone to, to correlate one or two or two or three or maybe four different data sources, right? And from your system integration background, you know, Dave, that for a local, you can hire a software integrator, or you can hire, you can get someone who understands uh, some SQL queries, and you can usually create a methodology um, for that site's operation to be able to reach out and grab a couple different data sources and do descriptive analytics. Okay, but let's, let's bring the timetable forward a bit to the late 90s. Uh, turn of the century and what began to happen all of these sites began to get networked to a corporate enterprise and when that happened the enterprise architecture was born for the very first time this is when we have sites doing more than just email. You know, maybe some sophisticated sites in the 90s were emailing reports to a, to a corporate head office probably not as much even then probably not right uh corporate head was probably still waiting for p l's coming up from sites production numbers at the end of the month getting phoned in hey we you know we hit the goal um but there there at that turn of the century things began to be networked the networks were reliable enough for these wide area networks secure security practices were being put in place we could start to connect data flows from site to enterprise but what happened all of those really talented men and women that were process engineers at the sites, all of a sudden were being given corporate jobs and brought into that corporate architecture, brought into that corporate environment, mm -hmm. uh, and being asked uh, to do what they've done at site so well. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. They, what they do, they copied what had been working at site and tried to start to expand it for the corporation. But you know as well as I do that let's let's just take a, a really large corporate uh, entity. Let's say, um, oh, it doesn't really matter which one, just pick a Fortune 100. Let's say something like a Pepsi or a Coca-Cola, right? They've, they've certainly got many different sites, each site probably running different process, a variation of process, but definitely using different software. Not going to be saying, well, Graham, let's lean into your brewery background. Um, when you were in breweries, how many sites did they have? Yeah, so, so when I was with them, they had about seven, seven to eight or nine breweries. Um, okay. But soon after I left them, they were acquired by AB InBev. And with that acquisition, they also bought up a whole lot of breweries in Africa. Um, and so they, they're currently sitting with about 36 breweries, I believe, uh, all different control systems. The only standard control systems and SCADA systems are the ones in the South African breweries. And that was a process that took probably 15 years to standardize on. It, you know, it's not a simple rip and replace. Um, and certainly the, the, the remaining African breweries they're disparate systems. Um, yeah, so 
this is the problem with an organization that that grows by acquisition typically right. right and so now all of a sudden you've got corporate engineers who have who are, who are tasked with the idea of let's gather knowledge from all of our sites and we will look at this holistically and we will help our sites to improve their process so they can make more product do it do it um, more safely right do it with more uh, resource management sustainability uh, and at the end goal uh, we are going to just like we were consuming raw goods at site and outputting finished product with uh, as low of cost as possible here we're going to do the exact same thing only it's data data is our product we are going to suck in as much data as we can from our sites we are going to put it through our process and we are going to output information and we want to do that as efficiently and as affordably as possible so that's, that's, I think, the first thing we have to realize is that when we talk about enterprise architectures, when we're discussing why is it important to plan for these enterprise systems, software and hardware systems integration on an enterprise level, we have to say, what is the goal? What is the product? What is the outcome? And, and the goal, the product, the outcome is information. It is decision-making support. The raw goods that are coming in are data. The outgoing is making the right decision. How do we do that as effectively, as inexpensively uh, as possible? And that needs to be our focus. And so we come to this and we've got men and women that have done this at site, now tasked to do this at the corporate side. And all of a sudden what they did at site's not working. And it's not working because they've got 30 breweries, they've got Four or five control systems. They've got six flavors of Historian. They've got, let's just say that in one of those control systems, they could be operating three different versions on those different sites. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How many times have you seen a Wonderware solution and uh, on an enterprise level and you've got four different versions of Wonderware running uh, and there's not even standardization on how you would pull data from those four versions? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Can't get out of that one. That one hasn't been upgraded. What's the upgrade path? Oh, well, now we're running into a hardware issue. Yada, yada, yada. We all know this too. And so you've got maybe 30, 40, 50 different sources of data that to be able to bring it into a corporate architecture and to then be able to start trying to work with it. You've got all of these huge challenges data access. <laughs> contextualization that's missing. So there might be great contextualization at site, but between sites, no. A lack of standardization, not just in the data, but in things like operation schedules, shift schedules, personnel, um, process, naming standards. Naming standards. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, Graham with the jokes, naming standards. So uh, th then l let's ask the, the question, Jeff, you know, uh, as we go through and talk about this, it becomes, you know, whose job, whose responsibility is it? If we're generally taking people who are really good at their specific site, elevating yeah. them, and now they're in charge of 10, 15, 30 sites, it, are, are they the right people that we should be elevating or should we be bringing in someone to kind of help architect this from scratch? And then kind of the second half of that becomes, is that we should just pull in all of the information, however it is, or when we're architecting this, is there a need to talk about a hardware uh, and software path so that we are 
not for not for software revisions and 20 different hardware uh, types across each of our 30 facilities. Yeah, no, they're absolutely yes and yes, yes and yes. They're absolutely the right people. And yes, there's absolutely great people, young people, new people, fresh minds that also can get brought in. No doubt about that. And the issue isn't the issue isn't the people at all. It's the fact that we've just stamped what worked at site and said, well, we'll just expand it and do it the same way. We'll do it corporate. We'll call the system integrator and say, we've got 40 different databases that we need to access, build us something so we can do it. Mm -hmm. Here's the, here's the other problem. Our technology is advancing. What we can actually do with data continues to advance at incredible paces, at incredible paces. And so five, six years ago, we start learning about machine learning and mm -hmm. AI and factories of the future and dark factories and all the, I mean, I'm not knocking any of this and I don't think it's buzzword. You know, I, I don't like it when people say, oh, they're buzzwords, they're buzzwords, because they're not. They're not. The issue is we keep driving forward to chase this new technology and any, we're not blocking and tackling for all of those football fans, but you know, we're not, we're not doing the basics just yet. That's going to enable, that's going to enable all of the other things. So, and the reason we're not doing the basics yet is because we are, we are still assuming that the way we did things at site should just be scaled up and done mm -hmm. uh, at corporate. That brings me to answer the question that you asked me first. You said to me, Jeff, somebody said, I want to do this in historian. Why did I tell them that? Mm -hmm. um, we're on, we're, we can't speak too much about the customer, but I can tell you this extremely talented folks with a very strong, very strong operation background and knowledge. And they said, we want to track downtime. We know that we're we know that we're getting X amount of hours on average per site, and we've got dozens, if not hundreds, of sites around the country. But that's all we know. We want to track some downtime. Jeff, can we please take Axiom? Uh, for those that don't know Canary, that's the dashboarding, the, the browser-based dashboarding tool, and it's it's very um, it's very capable. Meaning you've got the ability to script and build things in it that you would like. They said. We would love it if Canary would advise us and help us to build some downtime tracking into Axiom. And that's where I said, no, please don't do this. Well, why? It'll work. Well, yes, it will work at your one site, at your two or three sites. It's going to work. And it, it, the product's not, Axiom itself is not going to break. It's going to work. You can visit every site you want everywhere in the world, and it would work. The issue is, I know what you really want to do. And what you really want to do is track downtime at every single one of your sites, roll that information up, and start to understand and look for patterns in your downtime. And if you try to build all of that on top of a time series historian, you are never going to achieve the real long-term goals and scalability that you want. And that and that individual said, well, no, look at, look at your competitor. Look at, look at the company we've used for years. They would say, absolutely build it on the historian. And to protect the guilty, we won't, I won't say names. 
But they would say, no, 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 historians exactly where this should live. Well, Graham, you're more versed in this than I am. So I'll, I'll ask this to you and Dave, please. Let's just take historical data sources out of the equation. So forget dedicated time series databases. What are the other systems that a corporate engineer or uh, a data science team, um, someone who's working on working on some machine learning, um, decision makers, what are the other systems that they need access to? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, on a daily basis, we come across probably 10 different types of data sources. We've got REST APIs that we need to connect into, whether they're on-premise REST APIs or in the cloud. We come across multiple time series databases, you know, and, and obviously Canary is one of those. Um, we come across other NoSQL databases like InfluxDB, for example, that's becoming really strong and, and useful. Um, we come across relational type databases, transactional data, and this is a completely different data format to your time series data. Um, data coming up from your ERP systems, coming from your MESs, I mentioned earlier, from your laboratory information management systems. Um, Waybridge systems, also transactional data, uh, alarm databases, you know, just so many different data sources that, that can provide rich context to each other and to your time series data. Mm -hmm. um, so absolutely, plenty of them, Jeff. Okay, so if, if we're building these, if we're building these, and let's shift the word enterprise uh, architecture to analytics, analytics architecture, mm -hmm. right? Because that's that's what we're after, right? I think we can all agree we're after analytics. That's the only reason that we're moving data uh, to these corporate environments is to do something. With it. Um, so if we're trying to build the right analytics foundation, and you're saying the historian is the thing to build this on, all of those data sources that Graham just mentioned need to become inputs into your historian. Mm -hmm. that's, a, that's a problem. And any, any historian that says, no, 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 this is the way to do it, here's, here's, my, here's my question. I'm, I wouldn't pose and say that the historian couldn't do it. I, I know firsthand that Canary can do most of those things. Um, not all of them, but reasonably well, most of them could, could work within those, those different data uh, sources and bring contextualized data and apply it to the time series data. But what happens, Dave, if your company starts running really, really, really well? You start making a lot of money. Yep. What's the, what does a company typically do once they start running really, really well and making a whole lot of money and not be on a meet capacity? I, I I would imagine that they're either going to look to expand or look to buy someone new or, or some combination thereof. We're doing so well, Jeff, let's go ahead and double down on this. I like it. I think you're right. And so now you and I, uh, in all of our infinite glory, we take our, we take all the money we've made and we go acquire another, another brewery. Mm -hmm. uh, what happens when they're not running the same historian that we're, now standardized on and have built our entire analytics platform on, what do we have to do? 
Well, I would imagine the first thing we do, Jeff, is is we cry a little bit. We pull out all of our hair, and then we have to determine if we're going to go completely redo their historian. And by redoing their historian, I imagine we'd have to redo their entire system. Or do we try to kind of take their historian and what works for us and Frankenstein them together? That's right. And if we Frankenstein them together, all of a sudden we're right back at the place we were trying to avoid. And if we're ripping and replacing... The only people that benefit from that are the historian salespeople. Yep. And, you know, and at the end of the day, that's why I said no, because you don't build this on historian. I don't care what historian salesperson tells you that you do. It doesn't scale. You're, you're going to spend millions of dollars trying to relicense, rebuild historians that don't need, you know, there's sites running older historians that are running just fine, just fine. If I can get data out of that historian, um, I don't need to replace it. That's that's you know, that's that's just the reality of it. Um, I don't have to standardize the entire operation on one single historian. Now, brand new operation, of course. Do we want to try to do that? Absolutely, because you're gonna have you're gonna have easier processes long term. But this idea of ripping and replacing just so you can create a corporate analytic structure—it's a mistake. It's a, it's a mistake. Um, that's when we actually introduced these folks to flow and said, Hey, no, 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 I promise there's a better way to do this. Let the, let the historian be a node in your corporate analytics architecture. Don't try to make it be the architecture. Okay. Okay. We can get Graham fired up though, because if, if we say, if it's not the historian, Graham, if it's not the historian (laughs) that they're building it on, what's the, uh, what's, what are they building it on? Uh, there are a couple of other options that we've seen out there. So how about, why don't we just keep using our Excel spreadsheets? <laughs> How's that going to go? Yeah, we've seen that one fail dismally. Um, not, not a good solution. The, the other one that we see a lot is, and I, and I shouldn't knock this because I haven't really seen it not work, but I haven't really seen it work either. And that is, let's just pump all of our data into the cloud. Okay. And then we'll figure out how to solve it. Yeah, I haven't seen that solve the problem either, but I haven't seen it fail completely yet. So I don't think I can comment too much on that one. The other one that we see a lot is, well, let's build our own custom solution. And that is a really common one. And we've had a lot of potential customers say, We've got some really clever IT guys, and and I know that they do, and they are going to build us our solution for us. And that's great, but it's not scalable, unfortunately. Um, It's going to work for a couple of sites, and then they're going to start hitting the problems. That, that we honestly, we have hit over the years of developing yep. our product. Um, and yes, if they've got the legs for it, keep going, keep pushing. But just hope that those team members don't resign in the next couple of months. Or, or years or decades. Yeah, exactly. Even worse. No, absolutely. And I, I guess to, to Graham's point, I've seen a number of homegrown solutions be it an information systems platform, a uh, an MES, uh, some sort of process historian. Uh, I've seen a number of these homegrown solutions over the years. 
And, and as Graham and Jeff were saying, if you have one facility and you've got one or two really smart people, I have honestly seen it work maybe not yep. quite as well as something that we have taken, uh, you know, decades of learning from other facilities into, but I've seen it work about as well as, you know, just about anything else. Um, I will tell you as we talk about scaling. So this was before 2020. So this was probably like 2018. I was working with a fortune 50 company that will remain unnamed uh, to protect the not so innocent as Jeff said earlier. And uh, I was I was asked to come in to deploy an MES solution, right? I was asked to come in to deploy phase three of an MES solution after phase one and two were butchered by other companies who will also remain nameless to protect the not so innocent. And so we went through and we looked at these and the biggest and there were a couple of kind of competing factions within this Fortune 50, right? So there was the one that I was working with and this is the path they knew they needed to go down. There was a homegrown solution at one of the facilities that the people at those facilities were fighting tooth and nail to uh, to go ahead and use. And honestly, after going through and auditing it, Graham, it, it looked like about as good as anyone can build. The issue is that they had to roll it across 14 facilities in North America, right? And taking this homegrown solution that I've got five people working on full time in one facility to keep running is in no way, shape or form scalable in two or three languages across the entirety of North America. And the third one is that they had a, a 2020 initiative. They called it blank name 2020. And as part of that, they also had rolled in all of the same solutions that, that we're talking about. So um, in, in previous times, I had joked with Vlad about how this is kind of, hey, they can spend $5 million on this thing and $5 million on the next thing. And they're just hedging their bets that at one point, one of these is going to work and is going to, uh, to more than make up for all of, the, all of the money. So there are certainly a number of different ways that you can go through and kind of build and develop these solutions. Uh, but... I think the next thing that Graham and Jeff are going to talk about is, is how flow and, and canary can kind of work together or kind of flows uh, part of that information stack. But first, um, we actually have some people to thank. And th this is where I, I normally do the, the ad read of the sponsorship, but we want to thank Jeff at Canary and Graham over at Flow. Um, and so th this is this should be a very good buildup for kind of the, the next part of the conversation. Uh, so again, we want to thank Flow and Canary uh, for sponsoring uh, this theme on Manufacturing Hub and just in general, kind of all of the great support you guys have of the community. So are you serious about maximizing the value of your process data? Canary will help you historize every sensor and time series data point within your enterprise at a fair price and incredible performance. Lossless data compression, modern trending tools, and unlimited tag model will make Canary the data historian that never cuts corners. But historizing data only solves part of the problem. For super-powered analytics, you need Flow. Flow software is the analytics hub for data scientists and decision makers. With Flow, you can unify real-time, historic, and transactional data with little to no code. Finally, a single source for all your enterprise-level data queries, perfect for data scientists and IT teams that support them. Uh, and, and Graham, I think that's kind of a, a really good setup for, again, what, what I think the next part of this conversation was uh, was going to be kind of pulling all of the data into that analytics or transactional data hub. Um, can you kind of share what, what you guys have been building and how that kind of builds atop the next layer? Sure, absolutely. So I think, and maybe just to, to kind of 
with the theme of a multi-site organization, mm -hmm. typically one that's grown by acquisition that has disparate un underlying control systems and lots of different data sources and data source types. So, and of course, and I'll bring it up again, lots of different naming standards all over the place. Mm -hmm. So if you take the approach of let's just pump everything into the cloud and, and then we'll figure it out, you are mixing and matching all of these different naming standards, all of these different types of data, data formats together in, in your data lake, for example. Mm -hmm. I, I, I believe it's going to be really tricky to, to get value out of that quickly. So, so what, we, what we try and do, and certainly the philosophy is, let's create an abstraction layer on top of those 50, 60 data sources across mm -hmm. the 14 sites or whatever they are. Let's abstract the data into a common information model. And that is quite a key concept of what we are trying to achieve as this next level on top of relational databases, transactional, time series, real time, etc. You've got this next level which basically acts as a single, yes. as a single, single API endpoint effect that allows you to as well as as well as transform data aggregate. Sorry, I'm getting a lot Sorry. of feedback. Are you guys hearing that? It was just a little, but it's completely manageable. You're fine. Okay, cool. All right, so so yeah, so that's really what we're trying to achieve in terms of bridging mm -hmm. from these from these disparate sources and and providing and making unified place where we can provide information to decision makers and. What I'm really excited about is this next level of being able to provide all of that information, which a lot of it is pre-calculated, pre-aggregated. It's already transformed. It's cleaned data. Being able to provide that up to the machine learning and AI models uh, that are going to be that next level um, in terms of analytics. But before we get there, we need to have this foundation. And while we're getting the foundation, while we're building out this, this awesome data analytics foundation, which is, which is standardized and unified, we're also getting a lot of low-hanging fruit in terms of the uh, descriptive and diagnostic and to, to some extent also predictive analytics before we even get to the machine learning and AI side of things. Interesting. So how do you go, when you go through the process of, we'll just call it cleaning the data, right, Graham? So, so you mentioned you'd be able to take the data, the data would be cleaned, you'd be able to give it to data scientists uh, and process experts so we can go contextualize it and kind of drill further into it. Uh, we have talked not an insignificant amount on that topic, um, 
for for you guys, is that a is that a very manual process? Are there tools that you guys have built and are building to be able to go ahead and make sure the data is clean and known? How, I guess the, the question is, how do you go through the process of doing that? Yeah. So we've actually tried really hard to create a, a low-code, no-code tooling environment where we don't have to really do the implementations. Our system integrator partners, as well as our customers themselves, can do the implementations themselves. Now, a simple example of cleaning the data is, is to pull in a tag from, let's say, from a canary mm -hmm. and providing some kind of outlier filtering so that, that that's a level of cleaning so that that passes through as a first level transformation before we do any secondary transformations like calculations or aggregations so you actually are doing it effectively on a per tag basis if yeah. you think of it like that but but the way you implement it is via a templatized process so that you can scale. Okay, interesting. And then are, are you seeing that most systems integrators and end users are able to pick this up easily and as a tool that they can go ahead and run with uh, without much kind of additional training and, and support? Or is it a very kind of intensive get them up and running process? It, it is a little bit of a tricky process. So there's definitely a, a level of, of uh, training that is required. Um, it's quite complicated. Data management is not easy. No. So we've tried hard to make it as easy as possible in the, in the environment, but I do believe we've, we've got room to improve on that. Absolutely. Uh, it's one of those tools that if you're not using every other day, you're going to lose it quite quickly. So absolutely, you, you're going to need to, to have a, especially on a customer's, in a customer environment, if a customer is going to be managing their flow systems themselves, mm -hmm. uh, not through a partner, then they're going to have to have some dedicated staff or at, le at least one champion that is going to manage it on a kind of, you know, a weekly basis. Typically, our system integrator partners are working with it very often. So from their perspective, it's not really an issue. No, very good. And then, Jeff, I know that you guys do a not insubstantial amount of work of taking kind of the canary historium, leveraging Axiom, as we talked about, and then using Flow for the, the data management or maybe not, but for kind of going through the process of cleaning the data and then leveraging some of those tools. Uh, do, you, do you guys have like a good example, uh, something perhaps we could uh, could share as, as a positive success story? Yeah, so I think if we, uh, if we come back to the story that we started, that you started by asking about, um, the customer that, uh, that I said, hey, you know, I really would love for you to consider not trying to build this on the historian because it's, it's just not gonna scale well. Um, historians don't typically understand staff schedules. They don't mm -hmm. typically understand when you're supposed to be making product and when you're not supposed to be making product. They're, they're tracking downtime can be difficult just in that regard. Yep. Um, yep. They've put in their, their flow uh, pilot uh, and uh, 
<laughs> very quickly realized, oh, okay, well, not only can we use this tool to track downtime, but there's also 85 other things that we could immediately start using it for because it's not a, it's not a, this, it's not a tool that I use just to do one thing. It's, it's a foundational analytics tool. So I can bring in, I can bring in all kinds of other database. I can bring in batch information. I can bring in information from my maintenance uh, databases. I can uh, start to project values out into the future of where production might end up at the end of shift based on the last 60 minutes of operation. Um, and so with all of these different tools, all of a sudden the value of Canary becomes infinitely higher or mm -hmm. value mm -hmm. of your historian becomes infinitely higher because now you're, you're putting the historian in the proper place. You are going after every single piece of time series data that you have instrumented, or you're making plans to instrumentate the instrument and go grab more data simply because you've realized the value of that data when it's being fed into a larger uh, system. Um, so hear me when I say this, I, I want to make sure that my, our Canary fans are the folks that are that are used to working within historians. I, I am in no way saying that historians don't have enterprise roles. They absolutely mm -hmm. do. Mm -hmm. In fact, more and more, the historian is being redefined as being edge and enterprise and, and very little in between. I, I expect in the next two or three years, we will start to see the, the role of a site historian um, change significantly, uh, where it'll be uh, stored on edge, device edge storage, and cloud slash enterprise storage and very little site um, based time series databases to fool with. You'll grab stuff on the edge when you need it. Otherwise, the valuable stuff gets pushed um, uh, to your enterprise or to your cloud. Uh, no, the enterprise and the historian have a very, very key and crucial role. Um, but think of, think of how much more you could get done if you were able to truly historize everything without having to worry about licensing. You know, you could just... I'm not worried about tag licensing anymore because I have an unlimited option. Um, I have the capability of connecting to everything. I can move the data uh, easily to where it needs to land. And I have a tool and I have an analytics tool on the other side that even if I don't have the naming standardized right, even if I don't have my asset model dialed in perfectly, if I can get the data to this landing place, I've got the I've got the tool that my that one or two people in my corporate data team know how to use, and they can fix it there, and they can correlate it with fifteen other data sources, all of which don't know about each other. Um, and that is that power of that analytics hub. Um, I think that's what we have to aim for. And if you're you know if if someone's watching this and they're trying to understand, yeah, but what does the network diagram? You know, what does, what, how, how do I connect these things? You know, there's so many great resources already out there to answer that question. Um, and do a search for UNS, Walker Reynolds, Industry 4.0. There's plenty of being discussed about how to, how to orient systems to each other. But the conversation that I think has been really missing is this idea of what is the corporate role of of the historian and if the historian is not where i'm building everything if the data lake is not where i'm supposed to land everything where does it land um, and that's the question i think that we really have to start asking ourselves absolutely absolutely and kind of to that point 
Jeff, Graham, are, are you guys seeing large enterprises or small enterprises or folks in the middle starting to ask those questions? I guess, I guess one, are, are you starting to see folks ask those questions now or is part of this we need to get in front of and make sure people are starting to ask these questions because if we aren't asking questions now, there's no chance to have rolled this out in three, four, five years. Yeah, Graham, do you I think we, we most definitely are seeing a, a greater awareness of the requirement. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I also think there are a few large organizations that have burnt their fingers with a couple of options that haven't worked out. And so we're seeing certainly seeing a lot more interest in this, I'd like to call it a more structured approach to the enterprise architecture. Definitely. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Jeff, are, are you seeing uh, about the same? Uh, some of the questions, but maybe a number of people who have been burnt by more of an ad hoc approach in the past and, and the, the need to kind of have these conversations and build this as the, the rollout plan, if you will, almost regardless of the tools you use? Yeah. You know, one of the things that has triggered this conversation a lot that I get to take part in um, is this idea of, hey, we have a standard enterprise historian. Mm -hmm. um, we're unhappy, not even so much with the performance, but we're, we're getting killed by the business model. Um, yep. It's too, it's the maintenance is, is, is seven figures a year. Uh, we, we've got to get out of this. We want to look for another alternative, but what they're doing is they're, they're, they're contacting, they're contacting us and they're saying, can we, we want to replace everything we've done there and we want to replace with Canary and yep. we, we can do that. Right. And we'll save them a ton of money in the process, but they haven't paused yet until we start to have this conversation and and ask themselves is the is what i'm going to do and what i'm trying to rebuild the best way to build it or do i actually do i actually now say it's not just uh, it's not just canary just like it wouldn't just be just like it wouldn't just be slow right it's a combination mm -hmm. of this idea of let's treat the historian as a node um, let's get data to, to a centralized location and then let's find a different path. You know, everybody right now in their data analytics map has a big box in the middle with a question mark in it. Mm -hmm. Is this going to be the, the data lake? Is this going to be the, the corporate historian? Is this going to be something we build? Is this, Graham, I think said, is this going to be the spreadsheet that John made 35 years ago? Hopefully he never retires. Uh, <laughs> what is going to go in that that's that's the question they're trying to figure out and i think and maybe we leave it for next week um i think if we actually start saying what do we need to do inside of that box mm -hmm. what are the you know let's what if we created a list and i'm making a number up but what if we created a list of seven things that we have to do inside of this box before our data analytics team our our data scientists our plant managers, our C-level, before they interact with the data? What are the five, six, seven things that we need to accomplish? And if we create that list and then look at what are our options, mm -hmm. uh, if we build it ourselves and pretend that it was manageable, what, how would we do it? What would we build? Um, I think we'd very quickly realize the answer is not a data lake and the answer is not our historian. 
the answer is a new, currently non-existing you know, category. We, I make fun of Graham all the time because he sells a product and he doesn't know what it's called. <laughs> Graham, what, what is one yeah, software? Not true. <laughs> um, yeah, please, please, Dave, help us figure out what that box is called. So, so yeah. I laugh because I have heard Jeff and Graham make this joke for no less than four years. And I laugh because we're now four years down. Jeff gets to make this joke and, and Graham gets to mostly laugh about it. But no, I, I agree. Uh, kind of from when we started talking about this in the very beginning, that there are things that must be done. The data has to be, uh, we'll call it manipulated, right? That needs to be clean and manipulated in ways that are much more usable. We need to contextualize the data. Uh, so as everyone who has listened knows that last month we talked about IIoT. So Internet of Things and the Industrial Internet of Things. And many of the conversations were about the need to contextualize data and that we can go kind of throw sensors on things, throw them up to the cloud. But if we don't contextualize the data, then we're in no better well, nearly no better position than if we didn't go through the process of contextualizing the data. And I don't know a, a data scientist out there who has successfully been able to go down an implementation for machine learning or artificial intelligence that didn't have, like, that they weren't hand in hand walking down this process with a process expert because that's what you need in order to be successful. If there are tools that we can go down to use it, I think that that's amazing. You know, I think that the last, especially five years, has been littered with large companies spending millions of dollars trying to hope that artificial intelligence and machine learning is the silver bullet, only to find that it's not the silver bullet because I can't put a million dollars of data scientists on a bunch of data that goes back to 1973. And has no context uh, within it. I, I know a number of companies who, again, we, we can't particularly talk about that. They kind of went down the path of artificial intelligence and machine learning. And, and ironically enough, they found just by putting some good rules in place on scheduling on production, that they, they found a huge bump, right? So uh, a lot of it isn't, a lot of it is, is understanding the process, understanding everything. And then from that point, being able to, uh, to go down it. Um, I think that this is a good place to pause. I've got some final questions kind of to wrap up with both uh, Graham and Jeff, and then I'm going to – we'll do something different because there's a part two next week. I'll let you guys come in uh, towards the end with uh, with final thoughts as well. And we'll let Jeff go last uh, so, so he can leave us uh, with, with that cliffhanger before we head into uh, – before we head into, uh, into next week. Uh, so um, th th this is – I guess the, the first question I ask everyone or everyone's on here is what does the future, uh, what, what does the future look like? So what does the future of modern enterprise architecture or manufacturing uh, look like? I think that this is, is certainly going to be answered uh, next week, but, uh, but I'd love to kind of get the initial takes on the future and then maybe we'll ask for, for takes on the future again um, next week, uh, Graham, I'll let you go ahead and start off. What, what in your uh, opinion and from your seat, do you see the future looking like? Yeah, sure. I think, let me, let me start at the historian level because I'm, a, I'm such a huge fan of, of historians and time series databases because they form the foundation of what we do. Mm -hmm. 
I think, and Jeff alluded to it earlier, I think we're going to start seeing more of a distributed historian architecture. So more kind of going to the edge. Um, and whether we have enterprise historians or not, we're going to start seeing that distributed edge-based historian at multiple nodes starting to feed into more of this question mark space, whatever we call it. Because I think that is the place where we can abstract, where we can model, um, where we can store transformed data, calculated, aggregated data, and that is going to feed our machine learning and AI. And that, for me, is the next level, our, our probably most exciting level that we are going to get to. I'm really looking forward to that. No, very good. Jeff, well, what, uh, what's your take on what the future looks like? Yeah, um, I, and we'll flush this out a lot, I think, next week. But the, the concept of having to constantly replicate databases and move data from one place to another, it, it doesn't make any sense, um, right? Like feeding mm -hmm. data lakes. Data lakes are always, they're going to have a place. There's going to be value there, right? 100%. But why am I going to take the data that I've already stored in my historian and then go move it and store it somewhere else? Mm -hmm. that, that, that doesn't, it doesn't, we would never do that. And anything else in our lives, we don't do that. Wow. And so I think what we're going to see, um, and specifically as we talk about kind of the wish list of what goes in the box, is a directory service of all underlying operational databases. Uh, so once okay. the box is aware of all of the different flavors of historian and SCADA and MES and transactional databases, uh, now my data science team, they just query that thing and it passes the information on demand as needed. So uh, data teams that don't even know what a historian is, mm -hmm. meaning they don't even know the brand of historian their company uses. Because frankly, they don't need to. Right? I don't. I don't care what brand of gas is in my gas tank. What I care about is: Am I going to get 28 miles per gallon instead of 20 right now? That's yep. what I. Care about. Yep. You know, I want the results. I don't need to know the the formula uh, of that. And so I think that is one of the things that is coming. Uh, it's here. People just don't know what to call it. Um, Graham will talk more about it. Why don't you have a name for this by next week? <laughs> That's what's missing is we haven't you we haven't put you yet on a hard like deadline because uh, you're you might be crafting the name for this box you might be first to market with them so you got a week well I mean Jeff to that point it did sound like seven minutes ago you promised seven distinct steps of things that need to happen in this box uh, for us to talk about next week so if Jeff and Graham need a deadline of what do we name this box and what are the seven distinct steps I think you guys have about uh, six and a half days in order to uh, to get there I know it's been a it's, it's been a long four or five years for you guys so so no pressure but if you need a deadline uh, I think we have a self-imposed deadline of, uh, of some sort. Um, I, I would also say I, I love uh, both of the, the views of the future, Jeff, talking about how names and brands should matter less in the future as opposed to the, the value and the service that are provided 
Um, this was actually a really bad week for uh, for Vlad to miss because he went down the path of, of looking at uh, at filling that space and had done some research of that last year into uh, into the beginning of this year. So maybe uh, assuming he's feeling better, we we can touch on it a bit more uh, moving forward uh, next week. I will say before we go into uh, to the next question, uh, at the end of last year, we had a really good conversation with Alan Ray, episode 46. I, I think both of uh, both Jeff and Graham um, know Alan, and he had a really good conversation on actually kind of building some things in which uh, physical names, right? Like they, they mean less than the, uh, the box and the solution that uh, that are provided i will also say that the jeff and alan run it's integrate live correct jeff i have the name That's correct it. perfect and then i think you guys were live earlier this or earlier today wednesday if you're watching live are you guys also going to be on next wednesday morning um it's uh the next two wednesdays we've next got, two uh, wednesdays so next perfect. wednesday we'll be a busy morning. Next next Wednesday, Jeff is just going to be live all day, uh, ladies and gents. But uh, but no, so we will go ahead and make sure that we drop those links uh, in the chat below, and and everyone can go ahead and, and catch those. If you aren't going to have enough Jeff, uh, there will absolutely be more opportunities uh, to get Jeff. Uh, so we, we want some career advice, right? So th th this is this is Vlad's uh, favorite segment. Um, Vlad loves to, to talk about career advice, a lot of like early to, to mid um, engineers, maybe folks looking to get into the industry. Graham, fr from your perspective, um, yeah, fr from your perspective, if, if someone is looking to get into the industry, should they be looking at understanding kind of on, on the maintenance level, like the, the turning wrenches, if you will? Should they look to, to program and try to work into this box that is as of yet unnamed, but it's going to be the future? What would be your suggestion to them? Yeah, I, so I've got two sons actually who are probably gonna be engineers. Um, I won't be surprised. And my advice to them and my advice to many young engineers or, or um, not necessarily, prospective engineers, let's say, mm -hmm. um, is probably to delve into robotics for electromechanical engineering, um, possibly even biomedical engineering. I know that's a little bit off, but I do feel that there's going to be a merge between robotics and biomedical. There is already, but I think there's going to be even more. Getting, getting into our field specifically, I think the foundation for our field is, is control systems. You have to get experience at the control system level to understand instrumentation, to understand the transmission of data, to, to understand the creation of data, mm -hmm. um, and then start building the layers on top of that. So um, getting to the management of that data, that, that would be my, my advice. No, I think that, that that is very interesting advice. We had a series of really good conversations earlier this year about robotics. I know it's something that I think everyone is is interested in. It, it feels like we are selling robots at the pace that we can build robots. And so if you are looking to get into something interesting uh, that spins and moves on five or six or more axes, uh, robotics is, is certainly something that I imagine everyone is going to have plenty of work to do uh, for the next couple of, of generations. Uh, uh, Jeff, what are your thoughts on career advice? 
Well, I think if you uh, can master a TikTok video, uh, you should be good, Dave. That's the, uh, <laughs> it's the only real secret right now is to figure out how the TikToks work. Um, oh. <laughs> I, uh, I, I, I would say um, it's really more about seeking where you can add value mm-hmm. uh, to other people. Um, and so, you know, I can't pretend to give someone who's a promising engineer um, the right steps on how to become an engineer. Uh, but I can 100% say with certainty that if you find the things that you enjoy doing, um, that you're passionate about doing, and you figure out how to do that thing and add value to another human being in the process, um, you'll you'll never regret a single day of work in your life. And so that would be that would be my advice. I I think both of those are great pieces of advice, Jeff. Uh, there, there is of course one follow up question: What's your TikTok handle? I I imagine you do integrate live. You you create TikToks, you, you do TikTok dances and variety of things for four or five hours, and now you're here today. So where can everyone follow you on the TikTok? I was in an, I was at the, uh, I was at the Toulouse airport uh, <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, and I watched uh, like a girl about my daughter's age for an hour and a half. And I thought I thought she was rehearsing for like a school play type of a thing. Yeah. And finally, my colleague leans over. He's like, "No, nah, man, she's trying to make a TikTok video." I'm like, well, "Aren't those supposed to be short?" He's like, "Yeah, but she's trying to get it right for 90 minutes." Dave. The poor girl was doing some little dance over here and trying to. I don't have social media. I've got I've got a LinkedIn profile, and that's all I've got. I'm the worst salesperson slash marketer. Uh, I don't I don't do any of the socials. I do LinkedIn because uh, I think it's important for our industry and I care about networking with people. But uh, yeah, I don't even use my phone, man. I'm, I'd <laughs> give it a pack right now if I could. <laughs> okay. Um, th- this was a strange turn of events. Uh, maybe the strangest turn of career yeah. advice events we have ever when had. So, When is the last time? I'll, this is the challenge anybody watching this or listening. Leave your phone at home and go out into the world for a day. And uh, when you get done with all of the anxiety that you might get lost or, or miss out on something, like it is a beautiful thing to leave your phone at home and go navigate again. Like you have to actually pay attention to where you go. You have to be able to get home. It's, uh, it's a pretty wild thing. But, uh, yeah. I, I love this. Uh, Jeff is just giving himself a longer list of homework. I, I think next time the show is going to have to start with Jeff doing some sort of TikTok dance. So Jeff, you've got six and a half days to master TikTok dance, to, to name this box and, and to come up with the seven steps we have to do with data uh, to, to go through the box. Gra- Graham, your your list of things that you have to get done is is not looking nearly as uh, nearly as difficult as Jeff's list. That's good. Let's keep it that way. Thanks, Dave. <laughs> Absolutely. That's all you have to do, Graham. Keep the power on. Ah, Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Very true. Oh, uh, I'm going to jump so, on my generator now. Great. Uh, I love it. So uh, I love it. We'd love to ask for, uh, for book recommendations. Do you guys have a book or a piece of content recommendation, uh, recommendation that, uh, that you enjoy? That, uh, you enjoy? And, uh, you'd like and, to, uh, to go ahead and share? Go ahead and share. Graham, you reading anything right now? I'm going to have to ask you to but that was very echoey. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I was saying, uh, do, you, do you have a book or other piece of content recommendation that uh, that you can share uh, for folks listening in? Uh, something that you would recommend? 
something that I read recently is 100 Percenters, which is a great book on, on managing um, people mm-hmm. and getting the most out of people. So if you're in an environment where you're a team member um, or a manager, a leader, I would definitely recommend that. I really enjoyed it. Interesting. Uh, I, I don't think yeah. we've had that recommended yet. Uh, Jeff, do you have a, uh, a recommendation? Yeah. recommendation? Yeah, uh, so something for work. If you're in a uh, business management side of things or if you lead a team, I'd recommend Traction. Uh, Gino Winslow, um, it's an operating system to run any type of business that you could put into play tomorrow. Uh, and for fun, um, I just finished reading uh, Empire of the Summer Moon which is the story of uh, the Comanches uh, and the U.S. military. And uh, I've learned more about uh, the incredible ability of, of the Comanche people and what they did in just two generations. Interesting. Uh, Interesting. Book on history if you're into history or uh, want to learn a little bit more. No, very good. Uh, fantastic. Uh, and let me let me go ahead and we'll make this a two-parter uh, but because we, we're getting ready to uh, to go into part two next week. So uh, first is who should reach out to you? And second is, do you guys have any kind of final wrap-up thoughts uh, or cliffhangers that we'd like to leave everyone uh, to prepare them for next week? Graham? Who should contact me? Um, yes. Uh, are, are you are you looking for customers? Uh, do you want to talk to people? Maybe people who have very good names of what we can name this this box, uh, this, this nondescript box that we've uh, we've talked about. You know, who, who are you looking for? Are you guys hiring? We like to kind of open it up to uh, to any and everything. Okay, so I guess a couple of things. So the the one thing is that we are hoping to expand our office in in the US in the mm-hmm. near future. So we'll definitely be looking for developers, software engineers. Mm-hmm. So that, that would be a great uh, reach out. Um, we're always looking for customers, of course. So any, any customers. We're also looking for potential funding for growth because that's okay. where we are in our in our in our life cycle, we're at the at the stage where we're looking to start scaling. Um, so, absolutely, if there's anyone out there that would would like to chat to us about some funding uh, and join our journey, I'd love to talk to them. Very exciting, very exciting. Um, and any final thoughts on uh, on part one uh, before we throw it to Jeff and get ready uh, for part two, where we dive into what the modern enterprise architecture should look like, um, according to the, the people in the conversation. Yeah. So I think I I certainly hope next week that we're going to be able to give everybody a, a, look, I'm a very technical person. I'm an engineer at heart. So I'm, I'm hoping we're going to get into a little bit more of the technical of what Flow and Canary can offer. Mm-hmm. So let me leave it there. Perfect. Uh, Jeff, I, I, you are the sales and marketing guy who uh, who leaves his phone at home and isn't on the TikTok yet. Uh, who, who should reach out to you? Uh, maybe uh, do, do you take smoke signals, uh, paper, letter, mail? Uh, I guess who should reach out to you? What What's your correct form of contact? And then any final thoughts uh, on part one? 
Yeah. So info at canarylabs.com will always get to me. Um, or, uh, or you can write me a letter. Um, PO box one nine two. Um, so we are <laughs> Canary is uh, partner driven. Um, so uh, of course we want to help all of the end users, the uh, large enterprises that need a serious data historian. But uh, we do that through good partners. And so uh, system integrators that are looking for a better way um, to historize data and are tired of the old uh, models of licensing and business models. Um, I know for a fact that you'll enjoy the way that we do business. Um, and uh, what was the last thing you asked me, Dave? You said uh, final thoughts? Uh, do, yep. Do you have any final thoughts on the modern enterprise architecture on how we do things in preparation uh, for setting up next show, uh, part two next week? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think it's just think long and hard about the way that you've done things and ask yourself, why are we doing it that way? That's, that's ultimately, ultimately the goal. And then um, just a little bit of a teaser, like find $300,000 of capital. Okay. That's it. Like I'm, I'm really not joking. Find $300,000 of capital. And uh, next week we'll show you a way to spend that money. And you will have uh, with that, with that spin, you'll be done. You'll <laughs> I, I love it. Yeah. No, the, here's what I need, though. Um, you could help me out. Um, Integrate Live is um, the passion project that I've, I've got to enjoy for the last what, six months with my partner. And our currency is dad jokes. So if you would like, reach out to me. Uh, find me on LinkedIn and drop me a dad joke. I am uh, always looking for new material. Okay. I, I don't, you're either, you're going to have the correct people show up and drop you messages, Jeff, and everyone else is going to self-select them out of there. So I, I think right. that that's the best way to do it. So um, let, let's see. Thank you, everyone. Uh, please remember, we have new podcast episodes that come out on Thursday. So if you're watching this live tomorrow morning-ish, uh, there will be a new podcast episode from last week. So we will have just finished up IIoT as a whole um, and again, I have learned that if I ask people to please like and subscribe uh, to what you're watching, if you're listening on podcast form, please like and subscribe. You guys can rate us five stars on Audible and Stitcher and Apple Podcasts. Uh, it really helps. Uh, yeah, it really helps. If you guys are still watching us live on LinkedIn or YouTube, please hit the subscribe and follow button. Follow myself and Vlad, uh, Jeff and Graham. Also, uh, they are on LinkedIn and you guys can go ahead and check them out. Uh, manufacturinghub.live is where you can find all of the information uh, for what we're doing. And then we have new clips that come out three or four times a week of the uh, the previous episodes that we have had. But no, with that, I guess in, in closing, I'm just going to go ahead and mirror Jeff. Please find $300,000 and be prepared to spend it next week. Um, and until then, we'll see you guys soon. Thank you. <laughs>